The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Sierra Harrop. Sierra Harrop is an award-winning storyteller, TV host, and content creator. For 11 years, she told the story of general aviation as a producer and video journalist for AOPA. She is a private pilot with tailwheel and high-performance endorsements and is currently completing instrument rating and commercial certificate training. She has flown over 20 different types of general aviation aircraft and enjoys backcountry flying and long VFR cross-countries. She is also a licensed ham radio operator and works full-time promoting that hobby. Previously, Sierra worked as a storm chaser and news anchor for television stations in the central United States. I truly could not be more excited to have her join me today. Welcome, Sierra. Hey, how are you, Laura? I am great. How are you today? Doing wonderful. It's a nice, uh, nice morning here in Maryland, United States. It is a nice Ottawa morning. Um, it's sort of hovering around zero and we have some snow later. So it's a, a very Ottawa morning for this time of year. Is that zero C or F? We should de- delineate it here. Oh man, that's that's more math than I want to do <laughs> this early in the day. <laughs> but we are Celsius. I think it's okay. Celsius. Yeah, because zero Celsius is a lot more comfortable than zero Fahrenheit. Maybe. I don't <laughs> It's miserable. Yeah, no. Oh, that's funny. This is, I'm just publicly outing myself for not knowing how to actually correctly convert Fahrenheit besides that minus 40 is the same. I don't know it either, but a joke comes to mind. The Zach Galakanthanakis was on tour and he said he's with the uh, Canadian Miles Davis, Kilometers Davis. (laughs) That shouldn't be that funny, but I think it truly is just, oh God, who knows, who actually on the fly can... No, nobody can. Celsius conversions, and of course, break out your E6B. Yeah, exactly. All the listeners will call you out on this one of like, Laura, you should definitely have known. (laughs) How have you made it this far without knowing how to do it on the fly? Well, it's a brisk morning either way. Either way, we're here. I think it's sunny where we both are, so we'll jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? Well, I grew up in a family that had a lot of pilots in it. My dad was a pilot. My grandfather was a pilot in World War II. My uncle on another side had been a private pilot. I never flew with any of them, but I kind of grew up with aviation around me. We'd go to air shows. We'd go to fly-ins. And so I always had an interest in doing it. I always had a, a desire to fly. I never really had the the money, never really had the time or a clear path into it as a kid. but. Um, the desire was always there, the freedom, the aspect of like wanting to be able to travel and explore and use an airplane to, you know, bridge that A to B kind of gap was always there. And then I had a career in, in television and I was in TV news and looking for another job and found a job posting from AOPA. I had been a member of AOPA for several years as a, you know, non-pilot supporter and um, you know, love their their media, love their content, and just randomly found a job posting. I'm like, hey, I know AOPA. And so I uh, applied for a television producer job with AOPA and 
uh, out of 300 applicants, I was the only person uh, to figure out who the hiring manager was and email them directly. And that apparently impressed them. And they uh, hired me about 12 years ago. And that was how I got into it. I, my, my first real general aviation flight in a fixed wing airplane was jumping in from AOPA headquarters and flying in an Aviat Husky, a flight of two Aviat Huskies actually, uh, down around Key West and back up to Sun and Fun for 2012. So my very first entrance into aviation was a four and a half day cross country that spanned the, you know, most of the the length of the East Coast. And so I'll say this is if I'm coming from the perspective of, of a non-aviation person, and you still decided to go for it? That sounds awful. Oh, it was wonderful. No, it was great. Um, I, I will say that um, going up central Florida in the middle of the summer afternoon was a little bumpy, but um, it was it was a wonderful way to see the country. And it kind of spoiled me when I began flight training several months later and the lessons were only an hour. I was like, that's it? Because... Uh, you know, we flew all day the last time, and then I had taken another trip with uh, my boss, Alyssa. Uh, we were going out to Ohio, so that was my actual very first, my very first logged book. Actually, let me just pull it up here. I have my logbook book here, um, and it will tell you exactly how long my very first entry was. On 413 of 2012, Alyssa Cobb and I flew from Frederick, Maryland to Mansfield, Ohio, to Grimesfield in Urbana, Ohio. It was 3.9 of uh, flight and dual received there. So that's my very first logbook entry was 3.9. So it, it, it's all kind of downhill after that once you start training in earnest. <laughs> I will say, I think my longest ever leg was a 3.3 and the understanding with everyone because it was a single engine aircraft is never again. That was too much. <laughs> I'm good for about three hours. I, I I don't mind a long day of flying because of that's, you know, my early conditioning. Um, I think my longest day flying back from Sun and Fun this year, I think I did eight and a half or nine hours total, but they were three hour legs because I need to get up and walk around and get water and use the restroom. It's just like, I'm not going to sit in there. Like I see people put tip tanks on their bonanzas and, you know, fly way high and lean it out. And it's like, do you really want to be in the air for nine hours? I, I do not. I don't mind spreading it nine hours over a day though. I'm the exact same way. I can do a whole day of flying, but I do want to stand up. I have probably had either too much tea, too much water, and I yep. don't want to just sit around because it's not helpful if you just really need to pee. <laughs> yeah. I can't focus on flying if I'm focused on, oh, I've got to, I've got to hit the loo, you know? So maybe someday if I'm flying a Gulf Stream and I can walk to the back and do the walk of shame past the passengers, it'd be one thing. But in the piston singles that I fly now, that's just three hour legs are fine. I entirely agree with that. So when you started flying, you mentioned that you'd come from sort of a production role already. And I believe that you were a storm chaser. How do you think that maybe influenced your approach to meteorology and maybe your overall understanding of it? So this might sound uh, like a radical answer, but it didn't because I, you know, when you're storm chasing, you're focused on a much smaller scale. So in aviation, we look at kind of what's called the synoptic scale. It's like, we know where the highs and lows are. We know where the fronts are. We know what types of weather systems and weather patterns we're likely to encounter as we cross those features that are focused there. And then we shift, you know, kind of an operational, it's like, okay, let's look at the radar. Okay, we know there's storms here. If you get into a faster airplane, you may have radar on board and you can kind of pick your way through the storms. And if you're flying IFR, you might have, you know, a strike finder or something to see where the lightning is to avoid it. But with storm chasing, 
you are focused on on kind of what's called the mesoscale. So like, call it like, you know, a few hundred kilometers wide, you know, that there's going to be a weather event there, you've looked at the skew-t charts, you've looked at the surface analysis, you generally know what kind of event it's going to be. And so storm chasing sounds exciting, but it's really 90% driving and waiting. And so as you're waiting for that setup to happen for the day, you're driving to where you think it's going to initiate. You're looking at satellites, seeing, okay, where is the cumulus field? Where am I likely to find uh, you know, indications that it's about to fire? And you're waiting for that to happen. And then you shift into what's called mesoscale, which is a much smaller, you know, kind of storm scale, um, operational storm chasing meteorology. So, okay, the storms have fired. Um, what is this particular cell doing? What is, how is it interfacing with the storms around it? How is it interfacing with the atmospheric conditions? What is it doing? And then even beyond that, the micro scale, like, okay, we have a tornado here, but the storm is kind of cycling. I felt a little bit of wind coming out of it. So I need to look back to the west. It might be cycling and putting a another area of rotation down a few miles to the west or southwest. And so those are the things that you're focused on when you're storm chasing. And I should preface that the reason we do that, I was in, in Oklahoma and Texas doing that is, uh, and I can say this because I'm from Oklahoma, people there... Um, don't take weather that seriously because it happens all the time. When they hear a tornado warning, if you heard a tornado warning in Canada, it would probably have your full attention. In Oklahoma, okay, that's just Tuesday. So we have found and research has shown that if we can put a live picture of a tornado or a severe weather event in a frame with a landmark that somebody recognizes and send that home to their television screen, they're going to go, oh, okay, maybe I should take my safety precautions. So it's not just out there, you know, being a cowboy for the fun of it. It's really a, a, an important part of the warning process, but you're really focused on a, a very small scale of the sky at that point, you know, sometimes even down block to block, where is this tornado? So if you're focused on micro scale or even mesoscale meteorology while you're flying, you've already made a very bad decision <laughs> and probably shouldn't be there to begin with. So um, it, it, it didn't help me as much as one would think just because it's two totally different approaches to reading and, and playing off of and, and positioning yourself within the features of the atmosphere. Even then, though, I think there would be sort of this the commonality of a healthy respect for weather um, in both regards. You would maybe, and I'm making an assumption, maybe be a slightly more cautious pilot when it comes to reading weather going, you know, I can sort of see, even though it looks fine right now, how this could turn into something really bad. So maybe a, a more of a healthy respect for weather? Maybe, yeah. I, you know... <sighs> I, I, I'm not a big risk taker when it comes to chasing storms on the ground in the sense that, you know, I like to stay ahead of the storm. I like it to be nice and backlit with the sun setting to the west in the afternoon. And I try to avoid going through hail cores in the center part of the storm. If I've if I've messed it up and I'm not in a position to see a tornado, my goal is to get out of the way of the storm, whereas some people will go through, you know, the bear's gauge, the the center part of the storm where it has all the hail. I won't do that. It's just it the risk versus rewards just not there. So um, maybe I approach it with a similar uh, similar decision making and risk tolerance. However, if I have baseball size hail hit my car. It's going to be a bad day and an expensive day. If I have baseball size hail hit my airplane, it's very likely going to be my last day. So um, there is a, a much greater risk when you're encountering severe weather in the air and, you know, uh, uh, 
a discrete supercell thunderstorm, meaning it's out by itself. It's got the traditional anvil top. It's, you know, what you think of when you think thunderstorm in the Great Plains. Um, that can shoot hail like 20 miles ahead of it over the top of the anvil and large hail 20 miles away. Uh, you think you're close or you think you're not too close in the airplane. And then all of a sudden you start encountering you know, these massive chunks of ice. And, you know, that's that, that could very easily be fatal to both machine and pilot in the air. So, yeah, I just avoid it. So as you continued with your flying, you've also continued to gather different endorsements. And which one of them has been your favorite so far? So I have a tailwheel endorsement and a high performance endorsement. And here in the U.S., they require us to get an endorsement for each of those. And, and uh, high performance is, you know, 200 horsepower and above with a constant speed prop. And tailwheel, of course, is anything with the wheel in the appropriate spot at the rear of the airplane. So the uh, airplane that I did them in was the same one, which is unusual to get that combination of endorsements. But uh, there is a, an airplane uh, that friends of mine near Seattle, Washington own, and in, her name is Beige Betty. She's a 210 horsepower Cessna 170B, massive engine, 80-inch prop, and just an absolute rocket ship on big fat tires. And so Tegan Lapointe uh, was the CFI. They had just gotten their CFI rating, which of course in the U.S. is means they're a flight instructor. I understand it has a slightly different meaning up there. Uh, but they they just got their flight instructor endorsement and, or rating, and I was I believe their first endorsement. So we were uh, going out to AOPA's hangout in Spokane, Washington, which is kind of on the eastern end of the state. And so I flew into Seattle and spent some time gathering content with Tegan and their airplane partner Trissa. And uh, you know when we had some downtime, we would do tailwheel lessons for me. And in the in the the process of that, I got mountain training going through the Cascades and got my high performance endorsement, learning how to use the constant speed prop and, you know, keep everything uh, good. So it was it was all one and the same. And we, we don't require a mountain endorsement in the U.S., but it's a really good idea to get mountain training. So got some of that there in the Cascades. So my mountain training, my tailwheel endorsement and my high performance were all in the same weekend. And I think I found the tailwheel instruction to be most enjoyable. It was just really good, honest flying. I'm right in the middle of my instrument training, almost actually on the back half of my instrument and commercial. Um, so, uh, but mostly I've been focusing on the instrument, which is, I don't find that enjoyable. Like, I feel like I'm taking my medicine. It's making me a more precise pilot. It's making me better, but I don't enjoy it as much as I do kind of seat of the pants, stick and rudder kind of flying. And that's what the tailwheel was. It was just stick and rudder, look outside, fly the airplane, your eyes and your rear end are giving you all the clues you need. Keep those feet alive, you know, keep the, keep the airplane going straight and make a stabilized approach as best you can. And, um, that'll set you up for success. So I did my tailwheel endorsement in about, about three and a half hours of training, which I understand is on the lower end, you know, they tell you five to eight, uh, but it was just fly the airplane. And luckily it was a Cessna 170B, which in the air 
other than the 210 horsepower, mind you, uh, feels like the 172s that I do all my training. I did my primary flight training in a 172. I'm doing my instrument in a 172. And then I do most of my fun flying in a Vans RV12, which is a very responsive little two-seater. And I think carrying that into the tailwheel training is what let me be proficient going into do that seat of the pants kind of stuff. So I really, really, really loved the tailwheel training and uh, to get to do it with a very dear friend in uh, their airplane that was just a dream. I loved, oh, and it was in, you know, Seattle, Washington area and going across the mountains there. So uh, that was just a real treat. Now, as you mentioned, the process for doing a tailwheel endorsement, they typically sort of guess about five to eight hours. Um, there are some differences between the FAA regulations and the Transport Canada regulations, um, and we don't really have a endorsement for tailwheel. It is just a checkout. So ours is very much, I think, sort of at the discretion of you and the person showing you what it's like to fly a tailwheel aircraft. When it comes to doing it as an endorsement, even if they're budgeting that much time, what needs to be done? I guess really sort of what in, what does the endorsement itself entail? So I don't have the uh, the FAR in front of me. It is prescribed exactly, you know, the boxes you have to tick. I believe you have to do normal and crosswind uh, landings, uh, both wheel and three-point in both um, both normal and crosswind. I think there is some other proficiencies you have to demonstrate. It's really at the discretion of the flight instructor. Uh, once they have instructed you on the things that are prescribed in the uh, the FAR, Federal Aviation Regulation, then it's really up to them. You, the endorsement reads, uh, let me just, actually, let me just pull it up here so I can, I can read it verbatim. And, um, Oh, I see. Uh, in my flipping through my logbook, I also got a flight review uh, out of that uh, that weekend. Um, so tailwheel. So here is the uh, the endorsement. I certify that Miss Sierra Harrop has received the required training of FAR sixty one fifty three in a Cessna one seventy B. I have determined that she is proficient in the operation of a tailwheel airplane, dated nine eleven twenty two, Tegan Lapointe. So. Um, yeah, it's it's literally that's just the instructor saying, all right, I have checked her out in this and she has demonstrated to me in my judgment as the person who's been delegated by the FAA to make this judgment call that she knows what she's doing. So I, I guess it's sort of just a check out, but there are some prescribed trainings and I do have to have that in my logbook. You know, if I did not have that, I would not be authorized to operate as pilot in command of a tailwheel airplane. And I think that's a good thing because it is, a, you know, it's the exact same flying until the wheels touch the ground. And that is when the fun begins. You really have to be on it. And the flight is not over until the airplane is at a complete stop. It is a lot of work. And the work begins the moment you touch down. You, it's definitely one of those aircraft or rather categories of aircraft that you have to fly it all the way through the landing. It's not yep. something that you just sort of touch down and well, that's it. Um, for those that are maybe considering doing tailwheel uh, tailwheel checkout, tailwheel endorsement, um, having sort of been on the tricycle gear up until now, what suggestions did you have for someone who's going to go do that type of training? Honestly, don't do it in a 210 horsepower airplane. <laughs> um, it, it was great. And I'm glad I did it. And Paige Betty is an amazing machine, but I almost feel like I did myself a bit of a disservice because if things started to go sideways, 
push that power in and we were a rocket ship away from there. Whereas if I were in, a, you know, an Aranka or something that was drastically underpowered with two people, I probably would have had to work a little bit harder. So I am, uh, I am almost out of tailwheel currency here in the United States. We have to um, make three takeoffs and landings to a complete stop in a tailwheel to be passenger current. Um, so I am looking for an opportunity to, to get checked out in another tailwheel. And I'm going to spend some, I'm going to tell the instructors, like, look, I have the endorsement, but I want to make sure I'm proficient and make sure I'm proficient in an airplane with less than warp drive power, you know? So maybe do it in an airplane that's a little bit underpowered because you have to, you have to, I think you probably would work harder for it then. Um, if things start to go sideways, there's a little bit more of a reaction time. Uh, there's a, a delayed reaction time. I would imagine that you'd have to be a little more honest with it. I did it. I, I feel like I'm safe and proficient. And so did Tegan. So they, they gave me the endorsement, but um, I feel like maybe it would have been a little more test of skill without that kind of power. But uh, you know, go into the training proficient. If you are a sloppy pilot you are not going to do it in a short amount of time. Get proficient, stay proficient. Make sure you can fly a stabilized approach. Make sure you have a good, really good understanding of the pitch and power relationship. Make sure that you can maintain your airspeed because, um, you know, holding speed is very critical. You know, you're going you're gonna to do a wheel landing at a different speed than you are a three point. And so if you can maintain speed without, you know, just kind of instinctually, that's going to help you. And you can practice that. You can master that. And you should have by now mastered that in whatever airplane you're flying. So make sure you're proficient going into the tailwheel training and that will set you up for success. I think my level of proficiency and the amount of flying that I do in the variety of airplanes that I do is what set me up to do it as quickly as I did. I have some tailwheel training coming up in my, I would say, near-ish future. And just listening to the speak about it this morning and the, just all the things that go into it, you, you sort of have reinvigorated my excitement for getting to do this training. It was so much fun. I think you're going to have a blast and just, again, just go into it proficient and you'll, you'll set yourself up to succeed because it, an airplane's an airplane. It's the landing gear that's entirely different and the fun begins the moment you sat down. Now, getting back to your work with the AOPA and how you had gone from working in sort of traditional news to now news for specifically an aviation group, what was it like to make that transition, even just in terms of the content you were covering? Oh, it was, you know, it was good. It was fun. It was exciting to get to to come in and, and merge a hobby and a passion with, you know, my my job and my career. But, you know, storytelling is what drives me. It's, you know, the 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 books I read, the music I listen to, the movies I watch, they're all centered around telling a good story or having told a good story. And so I find in aviation, it's easier to tell a good story because most of the time we're talking about a passion that somebody has. We're talking about their life story and how flying has brought them joy or how they are, you know, using it to do something fun or good or exciting. And 
those stories are really easy to tell. I get to be a steward of all these people's stories and in aviation, um, they're just rich with that. So that was enjoyable. You know, I didn't have to cover city council meetings or, or murder scenes or anything like that anymore. Thank goodness. Um, which was good to get away from it. And, and, you know, TV news, you have a lot of, a lot of deadlines, you know, I would to come in, you know, and I'd work evenings. Um, I would come in and, you know, one o'clock and I'd have to go do a story for 5. PM another story for 6 p.m., and then a completely different story for 10 p.m., all the while the assignment desk could be listening to the scanners, and if a cat gets stuck up a tree halfway across town, boy, we better drive 100 miles an hour to get there because that is an emergency. It's breaking news. You have less of that going to aviation content creation, and that has been uh, enjoyable. And, you know, it's it's been a, an amazing privilege to get to be a part of AOPA. I was a member for years before I became an employee. And to get to be a steward of this, you know, 85-year-old brand is very humbling. And to get to to tell stories for it and and its members has just been a, a just an overwhelming privilege that I will will enjoy for uh, my entire life, because the people that you meet, the stories that they have, um, they're just they're just touching. Now, do you have a favorite, I guess, assignment? I don't know if I'm using that word correctly, but assignment or story that you had the opportunity to cover through AOPA? Oh, goodness. Um, how much time do we have? You can have more That's, than one. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just noticed on Time Hop on Facebook yesterday um, that was it five or six years ago, I was in Moab, Utah with Mark Brown of Dar, well now of Dar, of Quest, you know, he's Quest Kodiak um, kind of brand representative. Uh, coolest, coolest job in aviation, I think. He just flies a Kodiak around and shows it off to people. And he took us to Moab, Utah, which is in Southern Utah. And if you've, you're not familiar with it, that's where you get the, you know, those postcard canyon views where people go slacklining and, you know, uh, river rafting down the Green River and it just dramatic, gorgeous, breathtaking canyon views. Arches National Park is nearby. Canyonlands National Park is nearby. Zion is nearby. Monument Valley is not terribly far to the south. And so we got to uh, get a demonstration of the Quest Kodiak. And we did that by flying from Canyonlands Regional Airport outside Moab into Mineral Canyon Airstrip, way down in the canyons. And uh, got to, to just land on this dirt strip that's surrounded by 900 foot cliffs and has a river running through it. And it was just a gift to get to be there. And of course, to get to show off this airplane and document it and tell that story for our readers and viewers. But there are moments where it's like, you have to kind of soak it in and, and really enjoy the scenery. And so that was uh, just recently reminded of, of that because that was this time of year. I think, I think it was 2017. Um, then the people that I, I get to meet, I, I have uh, just an absolute front seat to history. I, I got to fly uh, and video um, Colonel Charles, now Brigadier General Charles McGee, a Tuskegee Airman. He was a fighter pilot uh, for the United States. Uh, it was then the Army Air Corps, uh, what became the Air Force in the United States in World War II. 
And back then, the United States Armed Forces were segregated by race. So they really did not want people of color to participate in the war, certainly not as pilots, but the Tuskegee experiment. And I don't know how widespread knowledge of this history is in Canada. So if I'm if I'm giving too baseline of a of a explanation here, please let me know. But it was basically, it's like, okay, we've got these black pilots. Um, what are we going to do with them? Well, we're going to give them the highest risk bomber escort jobs in these P-51 Mustangs. And, you know, we don't care if they come back or not. Well, not only did those guys come back, they were one of the most victorious units in the entire war. And they did it facing insurmountable odds of discrimination and harassment and bigotry and hate. And they they became a legendary unit of fighter pilots and maintainers. And uh, there's just so precious few of them still around. They're all in their 100s now. And uh, several years ago, he was he retired to rank of colonel and uh, the president of the United States pushed him uh, recently uh, made him an honorary brigadier brigadier general. So I always knew him as colonel. And so I have to make sure I give him his due as as brigadier general Charles McGee uh, lived nearby AOPA headquarters. And, and he was a, a, an active supporter of us and um, had been very active in doing youth programs and was still very, very enthusiastic and uh, getting around and doing keynote speeches and stuff well into his 100th. So on his 100th birthday, uh, AOPA held kind of an event uh, with some of his friends. And uh, the day before, he got to fly a Cirrus jet over to a military base and come back uh, to a hero's welcome. And then uh, AOPA wanted to let him have a chance to fly on his actual 100th birthday, which was the day after. So um, Mark Baker, our, our president and CEO, uh, took him flying. Well, really, the general did the flying. Uh, Mark was there in the left seat as the type-rated pilot in, in the airplane. I got to ride along with General McGee flying an airplane on his 100th birthday and document that for posterity. And there was a moment I'm just, I'm there with the camera making sure I'm, you know, appropriately documenting this because it's, it's kind of a historic moment. But then I just, I said, just stop, put the camera down and look. And I'm, I'm watching a 100 year old Tuskegee airman fly this jet. And I don't know, uh, I, I I don't know how to put into words the the reverence and the uh, the magnitude of my my gratitude and my gratefulness not only for him and his service but for uh, you know whatever timelines of the universe worked out that I got to be the person to document that and to bear witness to that because. Um, that that's just one of those once in a life, like that'll just, that'll just never happen again. It just, that will never happen again. And, um, I just, uh, he has, he has since flown West and, and I was just very honored to have a chance to be in his orbit and to, to get to know him and listen to him and, and hear his stories and tell his story. Um, so it's situations like that that I find uh, just very humbling. And I, I consider myself very privileged to get to be a steward of people's stories. And I I get to do all these amazing, wonderful things, uh, you know, rode backseat on an amphibious air cam from Sebring, Florida, Minneapolis, uh, up the Mississippi River. 
which is an open cockpit, 60 mile an hour kind of airplane and got to see America from, you know, 100 AGL the whole way, essentially. I, I view myself as a steward for our members and our viewers and our readers. You know, I, I it's never about me. It's never about, hey, look what I'm doing. It's how can I bring people along and be a good steward of these amazing experiences that I am just privileged beyond words to get to have. This idea of being the the steward, the one who has the opportunity, but it's not necessarily for you. It's it's for everyone. It's to document what that experience is like. It is this recurring element of storytelling. Do you find that that is easier to do when you're more behind the scenes or when you're more in the spotlight? Well, you know, I have, I kind of do both, you know, it, where it makes sense for me to be on camera, I'll do it. Where it doesn't make sense, I'll stay away. It's not about look at me. It's not, I'm not, I'm not an influencer, you know, I'm not here to put myself into a situation for people to see, hey, look at her. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a fine I line to walk in the craft of visual storytelling because at times some things lend themselves to a more experiential, you know, format of storytelling. Um, but it's, and, and I feel like I'm, I feel like kind of that's the way aviation media is going. And perhaps, uh, perhaps my old school TV news kind of chops are at odds with that in a sense, in that, you know, in TV, the story is never about the reporter. The reporter can present information in front of the camera when it's necessary to do so. But I try to walk a balance of if I need to communicate a point that maybe isn't as strong with video and I can deliver that to a camera, I'll do that. And if it helps the story to see me enjoying a moment or see me enjoying flying an airplane, I'll put that in there. But I don't have a drop of ego about it. I don't have a drop of, of wanting attention. I really want the stories that I'm telling, the the experiences that I'm highlighting, I want that to shine through. I'm I'm merely a vessel for that as a storyteller. And I, I don't mind having a, you know, a, a presence in front of that. I, I quite enjoy hosting content, but hosting content is, uh, I think, slightly different than um, putting yourself in a situation to make the story about you. Because if the story is about me, I'm failing as a storyteller to make it interesting to you without having to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a challenge to try to meet modern expectations of aviation content because you know the somebody like flying an ifr approach and it's just a gopro video of them shooting down the minimums that i'll get hundreds of thousands of views and i can put together some really nice like well-produced piece and it, it gets a quarter of that um, so a part of it is having to meet the content consumer and the viewers where they are and what they want. And I'm not sure anyone has that dialed in perfectly. Um, so it's just really, um, uh, trying to use my experience and, and, and my craft of, of visual storytelling to bring the person along in the best possible format in each individual case. So I don't, I don't view it with a prescriptive manner, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense to me. Um, yeah, the idea is never for it to be about you as the person presenting. It's about the story that you're trying to tell. And I guess 
for any storyteller, there's always that fine line of how much do I include maybe about my own experience doing this to really right. convey what it is like versus making it indirectly all about you and your experience of doing it. Right. And that's fine. Like I'm not slamming influencers and people that, that if that is their craft, that is their craft and that's how they earn their living. They, they are important. And, you know, through that, they get brand deals and sponsorships and stuff. That's great. I, I am not denigrating that craft. I, I just view it kind of parallel and separate to what I do. And so, um, you know, I, I don't have that skill set, you know. I I don't have that. I, I have a slightly different one. So it's it's just a matter of trying to, um, you know, emulate what resonates with an audience, and that shifts over time. You know, it, it changes people's viewing behaviors uh, shift, and it's an ongoing shift. So I think the challenge as a content creator is to stay ahead of that, or at least be very responsive. I mean, I kind of approach life at this point. I'm 38. And I I used to think that was very, very old. And now I I still think that's fairly old, um, at least when it comes to reaching a younger generation. So I always try to have people around me that are mentors that are at least 10 years younger than me. And we have some really fantastic people on our social media team at AOPA. Uh, a former colleague, Kevin, I really learned a lot from our, one of our social media people, Kayla Hunt is just a really, really brilliant young woman who's very in tune with the aviation audience, very in tune with Gen Z and their appetites. So I really look to her for, for leadership and guidance on, you know, what people want and what's going to resonate and how it's going to play. And you know, that's kind of a challenge because we traditionally look in aviation. We we want to look to the older people that have the 20,000 hours that have the more experience than us as our mentors. Well, I kind of shift that around. I look to those people to teach me how to fly, but to teach me how to stay relevant and to continue to make content that people enjoy. I look towards the youth and I look towards younger people and I really listen when they speak and understand that in my late thirties, they probably know more than I do. And that's kind of a scary thing for somebody that, you know, was, I was a TV news anchor and I'm a pilot and I'm wired to be this type A, go get them person. And, um, it's, it's a willful paradigm shift to then say, you know what? I need to listen to these younger people. I need to learn from them because I don't know everything and they know things that I don't. Now, as part of the team that puts together AOPA content, be it newscasts, webcasts, or social media campaigns that are generally reaching thousands of people on a weekly basis, um, what importance do you place on having content that connects our community and how does it do that? Oh, it's what that is the important thing. Like people want community. That's why people fly other than the, hey, let's go someplace airports are inherently social spaces. People want to belong. People want to feel a part of something. And AOPA, I think, is a good place for people to connect because we can connect you with aspects of aviation that maybe you didn't have interest in or didn't have access to. And so I think everything is focused on, you know, building that community of pilots. We want, you know, we, when we talk about uh, the the people who fly, you know, we want them to be a quote AOPA pilot because 
an AOPA pilot belongs, you know, an AOPA pilot belongs to a group that's bigger than them. And, and collectively, our voices can resonate louder in spaces where aviation is not understood and where aviation is under attack and where, uh, you know, perhaps there's, you know, regulatory burdens to overcome. When we stand together and we belong to a community, then the people that do that advocacy work have a stronger voice with the decision makers, be it regulatory or legislative or at the state government level. Um, so I think holistically, the content is designed to make people feel a part of something bigger than them, make them feel a part of a community. And, you know, the best part about this is an old trope, and I'm sure everyone's heard this, but it's absolutely true. The best part of aviation are the people like, you know, the machines are, are cool. Great. But it's the people that fly them that give them life. These are machines. They're metal and composite. And and they, I would say, don't have a soul that's not projected uh, by the people that crew them and maintain them. So with that comes a community of like-minded individuals because no person can do this on their own. You can't get training on your own. You can't maintain things on your own. You have to have people around you. So I would say community and, and encouraging people to feel a part of it and to see themselves represented in it and to want to participate actively in the aviation community is a, a very core focus of, of everything we do. Now, there's also, you know, news items that we have to communicate that are, you know, there's, there is nothing sexy about unleaded fuel reform. Um, there is nothing super fascinating about, you know, federal aviation regulations. But the challenge there is to connect that to why it matters to somebody and tie that back into that sense of community. No, I, I entirely agree with that. It, yes, it is maybe not as glamorous to communicate new airworthiness directives that have gone out or a uh, new change to uh, one of the FARs. So I can appreciate that if you can make it as part of a larger narrative of here's why this is coming into play or this is as a result of whatever it may be then that makes it resonate more it's not just an item it's not just a bit of news that could maybe be glossed over or frankly maybe even ignored um, if it's connected to a larger narrative absolutely and you know that's that's the challenge because you know not everything can be connected to that but you know in most cases uh, these things um, impact people and the way they interface with our passion of flight. I know when it comes to AOPA content, I'm particularly fond of everything that has the Air Safety Institute. And I know that that's sort of a, a branch of AOPA. Um, but when you have the different, the real pilot stories, um, the Never Again podcast, the accident and investigation reports and the early analysis videos, how do you choose which stories to feature? Well, I, I first I need to say I am such a fangirl of everything Air Safety Institute does, and I have almost absolutely nothing to do with it. I will forward them information when I see something. I will connect them with the story. There was a there I was that I suggested uh, because I saw a guy post about something on a Facebook page for pilots, and. I said, you know what, this is a fantastic story. And I connected them over there. But I have I have so very little to do with the amazing content that Air Safety Institute comes out with. And I, I think that they just look at where can we find a story that resonates 
that has a safety takeaway that is universal, that can get people thinking and help them understand risk better and help them make better decisions and help them make sure that if there is an instance that uh, we can avoid repeating, that they have that front of mind. ASI's whole mindset, at least internally, and, and I don't want to speak for them externally, but the way we work with them internally is they want us to be primed with a safety mindset to continue to fly within AOPA's flight operations department. Um, you have to, you know, do a safety stand down every year. You have to do safety programming. You have to do kind of a recurring, ongoing safety checks and safety programming. A lot of that centered around ASI stuff. So at least internally, they want us to be primed with a safety mindset. And that content is how they do that because it is so engaging. It is so rich. It is so like addicting to listen to that stuff. But there is a strong safety message there. There's a takeaway. There are points from which you can learn. And so it's kind of like sneaking the medicine in with the in with the you know yummy treat because you're you're hearing these stories that are just just addictive to listen to, but you're also learning. And that learning leads you to be focused on a safety mindset. So that's how they approach it internally. I think that's probably also how they approach, you know, their stuff uh, to a broader audience. But again, I don't, I don't work for ASI. I don't want to speak for them, but I am just as big a fan of the work they do. And they do some fantastic stuff. They really turn on some high quality video and uh, I think all of us um, revere their content just the way everyone else does. It's just stellar work. And I'm so proud to to know that team and to occasionally be confu <laughs> confused with somebody that has something to do with that content. I have never once felt like a pet dog being, giving, being given a treat surrounded in peanut butter when I watch those videos, but I will now be painfully mindful of that oh, gosh. every time I consume their content. <laughs> Oh man, they're going to hate me for that analogy. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's medicine wrapped in candy um, because it is so engaging and, you know, their, their whole mindset, they live and breathe safety culture. They like, that is who they are and what they do is they want to make aviation safer. And I, I think they do a pretty good job of it. I'll say this to any of our listeners who are not familiar with the Air Safety Institute become familiar with them. Uh, their content that they put out is so of such a high quality. It is so engaging. Yes, as you noted, Sierra, there are that those safety messages still all throughout the videos, but they're done in such a way that it never feels like you're watching sort of a, an infomercial for safety. It is done with a real story. They are not always happy endings, but there's nevertheless the takeaway to make you safer because as we all know, inherently you can't make all the mistakes yourself. And all of that content is available for free. I mean, some AOPA content is, you know, reserved for our members, but uh, the Air Safety Institute stuff, it's so important. They just want it out there. They want people to consume it. So airsafetyinstitute.org. And then on YouTube, uh, Air Safety or AOPA Air Safety Institute on YouTube, you can find all of that there. And we will be sure to have those links in the episode description as well. Great. Now, jumping around here. How did or did not having a mentor impact your aviation journey? I think having a mentor, and I don't know that I had one mentor. I'm, I'm privileged to have access to a lot of people that know way more than I do. 
and I try to learn from them as best I can. And I have the the privilege of having a lot of experts in the building. When I have a question about something, I can go to the subject matter expert. Sometimes these people have literally written a book about it and ask that question. And um, I'm very, very privileged and spoiled because of that. But I I try to learn from people that have different experiences. I find myself reading a lot of memoirs from pilots in Alaska, you know, bush pilots, uh, read a ton of stuff from ferry pilots that take single engine airplanes over the North Atlantic. And I, uh, have looked up to people for a long time that have impressed upon me things like it's better to be a good decision maker than it is to be a good stick. Because if you make good decisions, you don't have to necessarily get yourself out of a jam. Um, and because of the, the privileged access that I have to the aviation community through my job, I've really been able to soak up a lot of knowledge and a lot of advice from people that are world-class aviators and I have hopefully learned a great deal from them and made the most out of that access that you know being a storyteller for AOPA has granted me to be able to you know learn from their very rich experience I mean I I personally know five or six people that have flown around the world um, I've had the chance to get to know a number of the Apollo astronauts. And if you really want to light up the face of an Apollo era astronaut, you don't ask them about the moon. You ask them about their first solo. I, I had a chance to interview um, Joe Engel and uh, Michael Collins. Michael Collins, of course, the command module pilot from Apollo 11. And we were in this press conference at AirVenture a couple years ago. And of course, everyone's asking Mike Collins about Apollo 11 and the moon. I said, hey, take me back. I, I want to hear about your first solo. And his face just lit up and he was so happy to talk about it. And I find questions like that elicit stories from which I can learn from these icons of aviation and aerospace. Um but it's, you know, you, you engage them about flying airplanes and, you know, they they like that a lot more. Like had the the privilege at Sun and Fun to spend some time around Dr. Buzz Aldrin. And I made a point to never ask him about the moon. I don't want to talk about the moon with you. I want to talk about flying airplanes. I want to talk about Mars. I want to talk about things like that. And so to to have a, a chance to listen and to learn to pe from people like that um, has just I think helped me tremendously. I certainly would not consider any of those folks mentors. Um, mentor, I think, gosh, do I have an actual in earnest aviation mentor? I'm not sure that I do. That's maybe I should work on that. I, I say, I don't think you need to work on it from the sounds that you, as you mentioned, you just have this sort of opportunity through osmosis to just garner as much wisdom and, um, advice as you can. So I, I don't think you need to have one designated person at this point. I think you've, you've somehow found this, this niche where you don't need that because you have access to so many. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been amazing. And, um, you know, the, the, again, I just, I'm just so lucky to get to 
to have this privileged access to these machines and these people and these stories and these experiences. And I just, I hope I'm at the end of the day, a good steward of that opportunity. I, I think you are. Uh, And I will also say that I will now be stealing me. Tell me about your first solo question, because I can think of how many different people I know in aviation that are asked about the same couple of things all the time, which are very impressive. And I don't want to take away from that, but especially with pilots, tell me about your first solo. Inherently we've all had one. And you never forget it. So I might be mooching that question going forward. No, go for it because you get amazing stories. I mean, ask it of Sully, ask it of Tammy Jo Schultz, ask it of, you know, these legendary aviators that, uh, okay, you've did some amazing things and everyone knows you for X, Y, or Z. But what do you think at the end of the day is more momental to to Sully? Do you think he wants to think about landing on the Hudson again? Or would he like to be reminded of the first solo? Like that's everybody's, I, I don't say everybody's, but at least for me, I, I'm hard pressed to find a, a more exciting flight than the first time I took off with no one else in the right seat. No, I, I agree. It's it's the idea always of you're always in a rush to get to the next step, but Really, when you look back on it, it's those early days that can sometimes be the most exciting because you know nothing. You are just a little baby, just in and around planes, and someone tells you it's yours. Go take us for a lap and come back. It is the most rewarding, inspiring, and confidence, like I say, appropriate level of confidence boosting that you you could ever have. Yeah, once you've taken off, I I uh, was pretty nervous, um, and I, I knew it was coming. I knew it was happening, uh, but when I was holding short, waiting to take off, I was sweating bullets. It's like, all right, I've been trained for this. This person that has the authority to do so has signed an endorsement authorizing me to do this, but holy crap, this is all me. I have to be able to do this. Don't mess this up. So once I was in the air, it was like, okay. All right, it's good. It's good. It's good. As as Jonathan Donovan Baptiste says, it let it do what it do. But uh, it's um, you know uh, the moment leading up to it, it's it's very Hitchcockian, and and that you know Hitchcock said something to the extent of you know there is no fear in the thud, only in the anticipation of the thud. So that 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 taxi up and hold short was. Uh, terrifying and then once i took off it was just bliss you've truly just had an incredible career and incredible experiences so far and so um what advice would you have for someone considering a career in journalism or in aviation media specifically oh goodness um get the foundational building blocks for how to tell a story i mean you probably want to you know learn your cameras learn your editing software learn how to use them effectively to a certain level of proficiency. And that's a craft. That's something you learn by doing. So just just start doing it. Um, you know, to badly quote Rodney Norman, hey, you, if you can just go do stuff, you know. Um, and, you know, there are a few organizations that actually employ full-time content creators. And they're, they're very limited in opportunities. I'm very privileged to have the opportunity that I have and and to have had it for 11 years. Um, So go create, just go make stuff, go do stuff. Like we have YouTube, like you don't have to be creating for, you know, 
AOPA Pilot or EA Sport Aviation Magazine. Like, you just go make stuff for yourself and for your friends. And that's going to resonate authentically. That's going to be stuff that people enjoy. And you might find traction with a YouTube channel. I don't have a YouTube channel on my own because my I'm employed to create for AOPAs. Um, but the the idea is just make things. And if you want to turn this into a career, there's frankly fairly limited opportunities within you know the traditional, hey, here's your job, go do it. Uh, and I'm lucky to have one of those few positions. But that doesn't exclude anyone because there's a lot of people out there with their YouTube channels and, and they're making a living off of it. You know, I, I came to know recently how much some of the YouTubers make and even not the not the super big ones. Um, you can actually earn a decent living on YouTube, it seems. And there's no exclusionary barrier to this. You don't have to be with an organization to be a legitimate aviation content creator. There's space for everyone and everyone's voice is welcome because you're ability to tell a story and your perspective that you'll provide to that is different than everyone else's because we're all the sum of our own lived experiences. So my advice is to just go forth and create and be a part of it. If you want to work for one of the organizations, get to know people. It's a very small business. Aviation itself is a small business and aviation media is an even smaller business. So approach everything uh, with the understanding that you never want to burn a bridge. You never want to do anyone wrong. You want to be a person of integrity. You want to be a person that has a good reputation. You want to do right by people because if you don't, you're going to lose a lot of opportunity um, because it is such a small business. I, I'm, I, I'm constantly amazed at just how many people know so many friends and, and there's all these, you know, just few degrees of separation between anyone and everyone. And I always try to make people, my goal in life is to make every person I encounter feel better after the interaction than they did before. And so kind of carry that industry or carry that energy into interacting in the industry and it'll, you'll build a network and you'll make friends and, and that's that network will help you out both getting into a position when one does come open and will open doors for you within that space of creation uh, by by knowing the people because again it's about people these airplanes these helicopters these gyroplanes all of these things wouldn't have soul without the people that fly them and maintain them and uh, having that network is just critical and uh, yeah, just be a good human and, and go forth and create is the best advice I would give anybody. Now, typically at this point in the episode, I ask our guests um, about a favorite aviation memory or experience they've had. And we've discussed several of yours over the course of this episode so far. So I'm going to turn this on its head a little bit. Is there a particular goal for you that you have within aviation? Is there something that you hope comes together for you? Um, yeah, I'd love to be the space shuttle door gunner someday. I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> I hope there's not a door gunner on the space shuttle. There's, there's not. There's not. There's not. There's not. Or there won't uh, be. <laughs> no, well, there's not a space shuttle. But um, 
you know, I, I'm kind of almost to what I would consider my goal for fixed wing. I, um, I, I would like to have a multi-commercial instrument rating. I feel that that's a good level of accomplishment. I don't think I ever want to fly for the airlines, so I'm not like trying to get to 1500 hours, not trying to go that 121 world. Uh, although, although seeing some of the recruiting offers for first uh, year FOs makes me kind of wish I was that level of experience already. And maybe I would consider that, but no, if I could get to multi-commercial instrument, and then I would like to add on a bunch of different class and category ratings. I would love to, um, I would love to get a multi C and a single engine C and, and, and I'm waiting till I finish my commercial to get any of those add-ons so that I, I can take the ride and have commercial privileges. Um, I would love to, if money were no object, I would love to fly helicopters. I really enjoy helicopters for the utility value, for the freedom that they give. Um, and I, I am not a wealthy woman. I do not have $500 an hour to take instruction in one. So, um, you know, if money were removed as an object, uh, helicopter rating, I would love to get every category in class at some point. I'd love to get a hot air balloon rating. I'd love to get a blimp rating. I'd love to get, uh, probably more realistic glider at some point soon. Um, I just love, you know, love the craft of flight. You know, I've approached television storytelling as a craft and that's done me well. And, and the further I get into the craft of flying airplanes, the more I really enjoy it. You know, the, when you, when you make a really good flight plan and you, you execute it well and you, uh, you know, you fly the airplane smoothly and you stay ahead of the airplane the whole process. I find great rewarding joy in that. And in my instrument training, I'm finding satisfaction in in staying way ahead of the airplane and knowing what's next and how to do it and still trying to pull all that together. So if I could get to the point where I would you know, get the training on multiple types and, and classes. And and then if I had to just set a pie in the sky goal, I'd love to get a PIC type rating on Starship someday. That that would probably be a very uh, rewarding challenge and, uh, you know, probably difficult to, to pull off. But uh, that would be fun. And, you know, just just enjoy the learning. I really enjoy learning. I really enjoy flying. I really enjoy... Uh, the art and the science that are involved in the craft of flying machines. And I just want to be as good as I can and as safe as I can and share the joy of this with as many people as I can. Well, some of those may be, as we kind of acknowledge, slightly more realistic than others. I am nevertheless so excited to see where you and your career go from here. Um, the sky is not the limit. And so I'm so excited to see you with your starship type rating <laughs> <laughs> maybe someday we'll see uh it's it would be a, an amazing gift to do that i also i also want to build airplanes at some point i really like home builder i really like home building or the idea of it i've i don't have the space or the time to to do it right now but at some point in life i'd love to build i think that would be incredible fun I remember hearing there is a distinction between pilots and aviators and I'm listening to your stories. I know with AOPA and that being such a big part of your life, but you are clearly an aviator and not just a pilot. Well, I, um, I, that, that might be the, uh, the greatest compliment I've ever been paid and I'm kind of welling up at it. And, uh, thank you. I, 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 I I'm just speechless. Thank you. Um, 
that uh, that is incredibly kind of you to say, and and that is hopefully how uh, you know many years from now, if people look back on my flying, uh, how I'm judged because that I, I don't know of a higher compliment. So thank you kindly. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? So you can find my work on YouTube under AOPA Pilot Video. And then if you want to connect with me, I am on TikTok at Sierra Harrop. That's S-I-E-R-R-A-H-A-R-R-O-P. And Twitter is at Fly with Sierra. And then at Facebook.com slash Sierra Harrop is an also, that's probably my primary one to connect with me on. And then AOPA, of course, is... Uh, out there you can search aopa your freedom to fly on facebook and i believe it's uh, aopa pilots on twitter and uh, also on tiktok and everything else so just reach out to us and we'd love to connect and and hear what your story is we will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners sarah harrop thank you so much for joining me today laura it has been a pleasure and uh, next chance that we get we got to go flying together absolutely we'll figure it out all right The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, The Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.